0: I have a confession to make. Um, I don't know when it happened, but I just discovered, well, I've known it for a long time. I'm not an American citizen. Here's how I know. I have never in my life of 60 years ever been called to serve on jury duty. <laughs> ever. So my conclusion is it's the only way is they just don't have any record that I exist. Now, when I go in, I think I'm going to credit Pastor Jeff with this one. I know what I'm going to say. I'm going to walk in there and say, I have the gift of discerning spirits. I don't need to listen to anything that the guy's going to say. And I I know whether or not he's guilty. All you have to do is ask me. And that will silence everything, and I'll be kicked out of there and sent home. Maybe they know that's what I'm gonna do. Because sometimes, actually, when I'm flying, I can kind of determine whether or not I wanna have a conversation. It goes like this If I sit down and I'm feeling kind of energized and ready to go, and somebody asks me, said, Hey, what do you do? I said, Well, I'm a teacher. Oh, what do you teach? And and I teach at a seminary. Oh, that's cool. What subject? If I don't wanna have a conversation with them, in other words, I wanna nap, I'm tired, I say, I'm a Baptist pastor bam they're just like oh okay and if I really am annoyed and I want them to move chairs it'll go something like this I'm a Baptist pastor and I talk to people about their sin how about yours (laughs) and if I do that it's over I mean it's they're looking they're going can I upgrade first class I'll pay it this guy's nuts no one likes to talk about sin it's kind of uncomfortable it's like oh man it feels heavy and maybe tragically, in some ways, in our culture, we've really twisted it. I remember not too many years ago, you'll see on the, on the uh, screen, there was a, a, an article that appeared, I believe, in the Oregonian, and it said, an evangelical Christian club has quietly established chapters in East Portland Elementary Schools. Oh, man, these guys are so coy and, and so, you know, mysterious. Who is it? What well, was child evangelism. I mean, these guys are, you know, dangerous, right? Another one said, this is in 2014. This is, I quote, Child Evangelism Fellowship targets Portland children for summer salvation. Locals fight back. (laughs) Good night. You make these guys out to be the militia. This is one. This is really tragic. July 10th, same year. Children's Christian ministry called psychologically harmful to children. I'm not sure when we jumped off the loony bin, but we did. Because in our school districts, you're going to be a 10-year-old child, change your identity from boy to, to a girl, and the school will help you, enable you, support you, and never tell your parents. To give you an ibuprofen, it's an act of Congress. But to change your gender, they will do it at a whim. And yet, to tell a child that they are a sinner separated from God is psychologically harmful. It maybe helps me not go to a place of anger. When I read John's letter, first John he's writing to people just like us who didn't want to talk about sin maybe they denied it maybe they said things like i don't have a problem with sin never have i don't even believe in the sin nature There are are individuals like that. They existed during John's time and they certainly exist during our time. The danger, John says, is if you don't acknowledge that you were born into sin, then my friends, you're deceiving yourself. But on the other hand, if you freely acknowledge I am a sinner and you don't know what to do with it, you're in prison. And that prison is haunting And you'll claw your way, but you'll never get out. So not because it's a heavy subject, it's just an important subject. Because if you don't acknowledge that you're a sinner, you call God a liar. But if you acknowledge that you're a sinner and you don't know what to do with it, you're in prison. And you'll claw your way out, but you'll never get out. Where does John begin? It's the very basic and important place. And that is, my friends, we were born into sin. That's what he says. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. It's not that we claim I have not acted out in sin. John, uh, uh, Here, John's talking about the disposition. If I claim, let me phrase it differently. If I claim that I'm born innocent... If I claim that people are born innocent, free of sin, but they learn sin contextually or behaviorally, so a behaviorist model, if that's okay. We understand that people learn sin. But John says, if you claim that you are born innocent, you're deceiving yourself. I have family people in my family, not, not immediate family, but people in my family who believe that. And and they saw our grandchildren, their grandchildren. And I said, I don't understand how they come to that conclusion. But the fact is, is they believe that. They believe, oh, Mark, people are born innocent. They're, look at our children. They're so lovely. They're so innocent. No, they're not. They're terrors. Their native language is selfishness. Mine comes to them, not Thanks. Not, oh, how about if you take my toys and let's share them because I really don't need them. That's not language that comes out of children. There's this mine and what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine. And John goes to two ideas that are mistaken. Number one is simply sin is not a problem. In other words, I wasn't born that way. If we claim to be without sin, meaning sin has never touched us, it's not in our nature, we weren't born that way, he says we deceive ourselves. You're barking up the wrong tree, you're disconnected from reality, you don't know what's true. Because the reality is all of us, not because you're wicked, not because you're born here, not because of the color of your skin, doesn't have anything to do with it. You're born in the lineage of what? Adam and Eve. And because you're connected to them, sin entered into the world. And because of God's economy and mankind's economy, when you're born into something, you keep that. We reproduce in kind, the scripture says. And and God created, and he said this, that things will always reproduce in kind. In other words, an apple tree is always going to produce apples. You're not going to go to an apple tree and it's going to go, hey, this year let's do pears just to trade it up. You reproduce in kind. And therefore, when sin entered into Adam and Eve, they reproduced sinners. And we have a disposition towards what? Selfishness. We have a disposition. It may take on different manifestations. Some of you were born with kind of addictive issues. And when you were born, you you kind of have a bent towards addictive nature, maybe because of your parents. Others of you don't. But what is true of all of us, Paul says... All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's a second mistaken idea that John deals with, and this is given to us in verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, this is different. The first is, I don't have the disposition of sin. I don't have the bent towards sin. The second one is, if we claim that sin's not our problem, in other words, I got mastery over it. I grew up with a pastor this way. He we were having a discussion over this issue of sin. He had a certain theological uh, position that I was coming to grips with the fact that I didn't agree with. And he he told me, he goes, I haven't sinned in 16 years. And I was like, huh, when I get done with you, you will. There's craziness. I mean, he really believed that position. And that's a theological kind of tenet of that theological train. He believed, no, no. And, and so for him, he was like, sin's not a problem for me. I've overcome it. I've defeated it. What does John say? If we claim we've not sinned, we tell God you're a liar. That's heavy stuff. What's the association? What's the connection? Well, if I claim that sin's not a problem for me, what I'm really saying to God is uh, Jesus really didn't need to die. Sorry, not for me. Maybe these folks over here, but not me. I'm I'm above that. I've beat that. I've overcome that. John says we're born into sin. If you look at the news, it will tell you we're sinners. If you talk to the police, they'll tell you. It's a city of sinners. If you go over to Jerusalem, you go into the Holocaust Museum. If you watch the movie Schindler's List, you'll be aghast at the extreme capacity of sin to be as evil and wicked as you can imagine. John wanted us to understand that's where we begin in our discussion of sin. You are mourning it, it's in your blood. And because of that, every person does something with their sin and guilt. By nature, you feel like you have to deal with it. By nature, there's a shame, by nature, there's a guilt. And you struggle with it. Everyone deals with it. Sometimes you minimize it. Maybe you minimize it by comparing yourself to other people. I've shared a couple of times about a a trip that I had one time. It was on a plane flight. And I had one of those moments where I didn't want to talk to the guy. I didn't know him. I didn't realize it was Art Uline who was the doctor on the Today Show. I don't watch that. And so I had no idea who he was. I didn't want to talk. I wanted to read. I was preparing. It was actually one of the first times. that It was the first time I was ever going to meet my dad after 40 some years. And so I was kind of focused on this. And he starts wanting to have a conversation. And I bring up sin. It's a good way to sign silence anyone. And of all dumb things, he wanted to talk more about it. He presented himself as an atheist. And so I thought, well, what does an atheist do? And I turned over to him. I said, Art, everyone has, everyone has sinned. Everyone has done bad things. Everyone has hurt people. And because of that, by nature, we feel guilty and we have to atone for that guilt. And everyone does something. Art, what do you do with your sin? He kind of looked at me and he goes, I don't, let me think about it. And he did. He came back and he goes, yeah, my wife and I support some camps up in Montana. He goes, I realized. I probably do that in part because I feel like I need some I have some debt to society that I have to pay because of the bad things that I've done. I asked him, I said, Who are you paying? Who do you owe this to? He kind of looked at me and smiled. He goes, I don't make a very good atheist, do I? No. But the reality is everyone does. I've never met anyone. If you feel no conscious of any person, then then that person is so severed they're conscious, they're, they're probably a serial killer. My guess is that you can go to some mentally deranged individuals that feel no absolute remorse at all. But the vast majority, 99 point whatever percent of the population of the world, either minimizes it or I think in the church punishes themselves. And that's probably the one I see the most. And that is, they cannot imagine how God could forgive them. They know what they've done. And it just eats away at them. And so their motivation is to serve, is to love, is to care. And all the while trying to get what? The stain of what they've done out of them. Listen carefully. You'll never get it out that way. You'll be a prisoner the rest of your life. You'll serve, you'll care, you'll do everything you can to hopefully hear the language of the Father say, I love you and I accept you. But if your motive is to punish yourself, to make yourself right with God, you'll never feel his hug, ever. Because you're not past the guilt. What does John say that we do? First of all, you have to admit it, yes. Because if you can't say that you're a sinner, if you can't say that there's something inside of my life that separates me from God, from birth and through action, then you don't need a savior. But if you come to that point where you can, John says, number one, confess it. If we claim to be without sin, we're in deception. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. What does it mean to confess? Well, I don't think it means to talk about it. I don't think it means to get on Facebook and tell everyone your woes. It's part of the reason I don't watch Facebook much is because, man, I am just, there's times I'm just like, you should not be sharing this with people. This is ridiculous. Why are you coming clean through Facebook? There's some voyeuristic motivation that they want everyone to see how transparent they are. That's not confession. That's just trendy neuroticism. That's just somehow allowing everyone to look into your dirty soul. That, that's not confession. doesn't change anything. I think another one maybe is popular, maybe more popular, is explaining. It's the person that comes to the office and says, I know I've got control issues and I know I'm hard to work with, but if you had grown up with my mother, you'd be the same way. It's explaining away. It's somehow taking my actions and distancing myself and saying, if you understood this, this, and this, I, it doesn't matter. I, I, we use personality tests all the time. Well, you know, I had a personality test and it said that I am sanguine and so you can only expect this. Uh, what? Why do you give this test such power to excuse you from just simply being kind of hard to work with? No, can't do that. I need to explain it. What's John say confession is, number one, simply being an acknowledgement of my responsibility. I own it. The reason why no one wants to work on my team at work is because, frankly, I'm a prickly porcupine and I don't get along with people. Ah, now you're honest. The reason why I don't want to grab a baby bottle for Hope Pregnancy is because I had an abortion, and I can't get over it. And every time you do that baby bottle campaign every year, it reminds me of it. And I've decided to quit going to church from Mother's Day to Father's Day until you get done with a stupid baby bottle. Okay. No, thank you. You've owned it. It's not somebody else's fault. It's not your parents. You made a choice. Doesn't mean you're wicked and evil just means you've owned your sin. That's where we begin. And you can't begin anywhere else. Because unless you own it, you're never going to feel the need for forgiveness. But the second part of owning it, and this is a little harder sometimes, is what I call sharing in the pain. I think sometimes David teaches us in Psalm 32, it's a really wonderful psalm, is where he's coming to God confessing. He goes, Lord, I've been hiding from you. I've kept silent about it. And your heavy hand on me is crushing me. But in Psalm 51, he talks to us about, and this is where he'd sinned with Bathsheba. And he comes and he says to God, God, against you and you alone I've sinned. And when I first read that, I said, wait, are you kidding me? You sinned against Bathsheba? You sinned against her husband? You sinned against the nation? What's this garbage about you just sinned against God? You sinned against a bunch of people. And the more I've studied it, the more I'm convinced that what David is saying is God... I need to own the fact that my sin hurt you. And you need to own that pain. I think when I was younger, I didn't understand this at all because of my view of God. I viewed God as kind of, well, he was powerful. He was almighty. He was sovereign. I, he, he was a loving father, but kind of distant, It was easy for me to go there. I didn't have a dad. And so dads weren't really emotionally connected. And I didn't think God was really all that emotionally connected. And so when I sinned, and I did, and I would confess it, it was really, really sterile. It was kind of like, okay, Lord, I've sinned. You're going to forgive me. Kind of exchange of goods and services. We're good. Let's move on. And then I read the book of Hosea. And in some ways for a while, my world was wrecked. If you don't know the book of Hosea, let me give it to you in very simple form. God had a prophet that he wanted to speak to the nation of Israel. Israel was at the time, as they often were, unfaithful and betraying God. And so God went to one of his prophets. I consider him in that sense kind of a pastor. And he said to his pastor, I want you to go get married, but here's the requirements. She must be a woman who is unfaithful. Huh? Yes. I want you to marry a woman that goes out on Friday night and cheats on you. And you have to go and get her from the brothel on Saturday night. And you're going to pick her up Sunday night, most of the time drunk. You're going to take her home and you're going to nurture her and you're going to care for her. And she's going to love you till Thursday. But then to be quite honest with you, you're not going to be enough for her. And she's going to go out again. And it's going to happen week after week after week. God, why would you ever give me that assignment? God tells him, it's because you're gonna preach to a group of people who treat me exactly that way. And when you preach, I want you to have tears in your eyes. I want you to understand what it feels like to be betrayed. I want you to feel it in your heart because if you don't feel it, your preaching's gonna be sterile and you're not gonna move my people. I love them, but they're unfaithful. When I began to study Hosea, I began to realize that when I sin, I hurt my father. I emotionally touch him in a way that grieves him. It's like a a dad that went and picked up his daughter from a drug house. And when he walked in, people were passed out. And to most of them, he didn't know their name and they didn't really matter. But his daughter in the back room, who was shaking and sweating and somewhat unconscious, that mattered. And he picked her up and he took her home. He put her in bed and he watched her. He didn't take his eye off of her. And the entire time, tears came down his eyes. Because that's what happens when a father sees his daughter make poor choices. See, if I'm going to confess, I've got to find a way, and you do too, that you have to understand you're not dealing with an energy source called God. You're dealing with a personal God who's affected by the way I live. And so when I confess, I not only have to own it, I have to acknowledge, Father, I've hurt you. I've grieved you. My unfaithfulness touched you. And that means I have to genuinely risk Your grace. And it is a risk. As I was reading a story of a young lady by the name of Tess who got married. And that night when she was going on her honeymoon with her husband, just a conviction came over her. And before they celebrated the evening, Tess felt integrity required that she tell her husband, I have made mistakes in the past and this isn't the first time. And I wanted you to know that. It's a risk. Her husband never took his clothes off. They never consummated their marriage. They were married for one day and he divorced her. You see, grace is a risk. Sometimes it's not given to you. With God, it always is. But it's a risk because you come and when you've owned it, you wonder, God, will you again put your arm around me? And John says, the answer is yes. You confess it, but you also accept his forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just. And he will forgive you. And secondly, he will purify you what does it mean to accept his forgiveness is to understand it to forgive someone is to release them from their debt and obligation it means that God doesn't want to discuss it with you anymore you don't have to make amends you don't have to earn God's favor again you don't have to get on God's side you don't have to play make up you don't have to like, God, I've done a lot of bad things and, and, and I got to do some things or you're, you're not going to bless me. I got to help in the nursery. I, I got to do something for you. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, to forgive someone is to release them from their debt, to release them from their obligation and to purify them. I want you to circle this word because this is where I think a lot of Christians hiccup. They can technically understand God's forgiven me, but they don't go to the place where God says, I've purified you, I've cleansed you. There's a number of ads out on laundry detergent or those things. I like them because I always see God in these ads. And they talk about it gets everything and it removes the stain. And I'm always kind of excited. Why? Because, man, anything that can do that, that can take red Kool-Aid and extract it out, like that stuff's powerful there are times that you experience not that power we were hiking one day when our kids were younger and we were poorer than dirt and if you're poor you go hiking and so we were hiking and we took our dog and we were in this place called the hundred acre woods and it's where we hiked a lot And it was so much fun and we were out there hiking around and all of a sudden we had a dog and man we heard the dog start to yelp arr, arr. It was like wow what happened Maybe it hit a trap or something. It wasn't a place to hunt. And the dog came over. And when it got within 30 yards, I knew, oh, man. Have you ever uh, encountered a dog that uh, slow danced with a skunk? I have no idea. I I know somebody's going to tell me at the end of the service. You always do. You're smart people. But I have no idea why God created skunks. Skunks. They serve no redemptive purpose at all. And because I like to hang out with vets, you know, and those kind of things, uh, my vet once told me this fun fact to know and tell a dog's capacity to smell is a hundred times yours. You know what that means? I was suffering, my dog was losing his mind. I mean, I couldn't imagine it, man, they had to go crazy. so I grabbed the dog, we put it in the back and the kids are going, dad, just leave the dog. It was so, so bad. We went home, got on the internet. What do you do with a dog that encountered a skunk, tomato juice and lime and vinegar? They lied. Every last one of them. That stuff didn't cut through that thing. Dogs sat outside. I would apologize to our neighbors. No one's going to rob our neighborhood for the next three months. They won't come in. You wanted to keep your dog dry because when they were dry, it wasn't quite as painful. But if the dog went outside and it got wet, oh, whoa. And I'm pretty convinced that a lot of Christians live exactly that way. They're forgiven in their mind. They know it technically. But things happen. They go to church and they see a baby bottle. And it brings back a choice you made 10 years ago. And you feel guilty. And you go home and everyone says, You okay? Yeah, I'm fine. You seem a little down. Nah, don't worry. You push it off. But what you're really fighting is the stain is still there. It hurts you. It ruins you. You get better by Tuesday, Wednesday. And then the ambush hits you in another day. To purify something is to remove what doesn't belong there. Guilt doesn't belong in your heart. Shame does not belong in your heart. Romans 8 1 says, There's now, therefore, no condemnation, no shame, no ongoing guilt to the person who's been cleansed by the blood of Christ. If you say that you haven't sinned, you're not born with the nature of sin. And God says you're deceived, and to be honest with you, you're a liar. But if you say that you're a sinner and you don't know what to do with it, you're in prison. And you'll try and claw your way out of that. You'll try and serve your way out of that. You'll try and give your way out of that. But you'll never get out of it, ever, because you can't get out of that prison in your own energy. Every person does something with their guilt and sin. John says, confess it. And then maybe the harder thing is accept the fact that the Father has cleansed you of all unrighteousness. And he's put his arm around you. And he says, I love you. But you gotta believe that. You have to believe the scriptures this morning more than the emotions and the feelings that some of you have become addicted to believing and maybe even the voices in your family. You have to begin to believe it or you'll never be free. But you know you're living deep when your sins are forgiven and your soul is free. Sometimes I find in life God gives us these illustrations in some of the strangest places. I wouldn't quote Howard Schultz as a godly man. He just gives us a really beautiful picture. Howard Schultz was the uh, CEO of Starbucks. And he ran Starbucks when it was just like this, a torpedo straight up. They were putting stores everywhere. And I mean, they were one of the hottest commodities. And if you invested in Starbucks early on, you're a rich person today. Howard resigned in 2000 took a break. I don't know what uh, you do when you're a gazillionaire and you don't have any responsibilities. You probably go to an island and snorkel. In 2008, when yes, the economy was tanking, Starbucks was, and they were closing the stores up and they reached out to Schultz and they said to Howard, Howard, we need your help. Would you come back? And he did. And he came back and he began to look and he was aghast at what he saw. They weren't treating their employees well. They were letting things slip. They were not taking care of important things, and so when Howard came back in, this is what he did. He got in front of his 180,000 employees and simply said this, "We're sorry. We have failed you. We have failed you as a company. We have failed you as leaders." And the only thing we can do is own it and ask your forgiveness and ask you to stay with us as we turn this ship around. After Howard did that, he made this statement. Once we confessed, it was a powerful turning point for our entire company. It's like when you have a secret and you get it out. The burden is off your shoulders. I find in Howard's story, the words of John. If you can't acknowledge that you're born into sin and you got a separation between you and God, you're lying to yourself and you're just deceiving yourself. And tragically, you're going to find out when you stand before God that you bought into a lie. Don't beat yourself up for it, just own it. You were born with the DNA of sin. Came from Adam and Eve. And by the way, you've ratified it 10,000 times. That's probably not most of yours problems in this room. Yours is this. Do you know what to do with your sin? Do you know how to bring it to the Father and confess it and trust He's faithful and just to purify, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you know how to fight off the enemy when he comes and accuses you? And do you have the truth of God's word to say, not today? Because when you confess it, it becomes a turning point. It's a secret that gets out that you tell to the father. And the burden is off your shoulders. And it's at that point, your soul is free. John says in chapter two, verse one, as he's writing to them, he's just dealt with this critical exposition on sin. And he says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. See, to the person who says confession and grace just leads to more license, I'm sorry you haven't read the Bible. I'm writing to you so that you wouldn't sin. Why? Because when you're free, you're not motivated to abuse grace. You're inspired to honor grace. By the way, If you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. You have a defense attorney, and he's never lost a case, ever. And he's not going to lose a first one with you. He knows how to defend you, and he uses his blood to do it. Don't deny it.